I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. The first I heard of J.D. McCabe's story I knew I needed to bring him to the When Dating Hurts podcast. After 17 years and what felt like a loving marriage, everything went sideways. JD's story will hold your attention from start to finish. It's a domestic violence narrative with breathtaking twists and turns. So JD, the first thing I'd like to say is thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Your story I heard about about a month ago and when I first heard it, my jaw just dropped. And I've, I've had my jaw drop a lot over the last 17 years or so since my daughter passed away. But still, there are ones that come along that'll just go, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened to this, to this man or to this woman. And so here we are today. So it's really a, it's a great thing that you have taken your story on the road, so to speak, and you've written a book about it. You've done a lot of interviews, so I was happy to be able to grab you. So let's kind of dive into it a little bit if you want to. Uh, so let me just start by saying thank you for being here. Let me just you, you say are that very, to you. Well, you're very welcome, and I, pre- I appreciate the opportunity. I, re- I really do. So I, I thank you for sharing your platform with me, and, and I look forward to uh, the discussion about it. Yeah. Good. That's great. So, okay, so this is going to be really a conversation about you and your ex-wife and your family, for that matter. So let's go, if we can, to maybe your earliest memories of meeting your wife and and what that was like, how you felt about meeting her and striking up a relationship. Obviously, you get married and things, but really, you know, let's go back to the part where your heart went pity-pat, I guess some people say. Yeah, well, that's yeah, and I can I can visualize it now. So I would take you back, uh, good Lord, now, thirty-one years. I was playing in a slow pitch softball league. It was nothing competitive, just an opportunity to you know play a little softball, drink a few beers with the boys afterwards. And I was playing shortstop and looked up in the stands, and, and there she was. She was a uh, you know, strikingly beautiful woman, long blonde hair, beautiful green eyes. And I asked the third baseman because she was the, she was sitting next to his wife. I I said, who is that? And lo and behold, we'd get together after, after the game, just some small talk, a couple of beers. You know, she did share with me that night in our limited time together that she had been previously married. You know, she had been married for eight weeks. She got married at the age of 22. And to be honest with you, Bill, it it caused me some pause to the point where I said, "Hmm." I mean, I got her phone number, but I never, I never reached out to her to try to initiate anything beyond that. Now, now, let me stop you there. The pause was the eight weeks comment. Is that it? Uh, the, the eight weeks comment, yeah. The eight weeks comment, the fact that she had been married to a man that was 10 years her senior. And I got to thinking, mm, yeah, I don't know. Do I want any part of that? You know? and, yeah, I guess uh, so. Yeah, she, again, she was beautiful. And I would run into her, you know, three months later, as fate would have it, I'd run into her in a watering hole in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, <laughs> I tried the old smooth line of, you know, I've been meaning to call you. And, uh, and she just looked at me with a smile on her face and said, I haven't been sitting by the phone waiting. Oh. And uh, it, it was at that point that I thought, okay, all right. I like her. I like her spirit. Game on. <laughs> Game on. I like her spirit. I like her fieriness. And uh, sure. Yeah. The, the rest is history. So we, we dated, uh, dated about a year and a half. Uh, we were engaged uh, probably within two years after dating. And then we, Got married in, of all days, September 11th, 1993. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I would say the first 17 years. And I've, I believe it, you know, trust me, I've peeled back the onion since all this has happened to see to say, what, what did I miss? What did I miss? How the hell could this have been so reasonably happy and normal 
for 17 years and then the, the you know the wheels just completely come off and there's nothing that really jumps out at me that says hmm you should have you should have dug into the one thing that really jumped out at me was the first marriage piece yes. but her mother and her grandmother validated the story um the story that i got was and and this is where it really becomes complicated as i lay it out in the book her father accepted his homosexuality when she was two came out of the closet accepted it the parents divorced he would stick around town for i don't know five six years and then ultimately he would move to chicago and then would spend the rest of his life in florida she portrayed the picture um, of her father as being a, you know, a deadbeat dad, never paid any child support, you know, had his horses, had his nice houses, did nothing for the kids. I never asked her mother about it. Her mother never had a negative word to say about her ex-husband, which I applauded. But I, I, I should have peeled back the onion a little bit more on her first marriage and then certainly the complications of what I thought her relationship with her father was. I accepted everything that, that she said that, yeah, he was a deadbeat dad because she had been estranged from him for 10 years after we, after we met. When, when I met her, she had no relationship with her father. And as strange as it may sound, her father actually took in her ex-husband. And he lived with her father. And I, I couldn't understand that. And, and I said to her, I said, why would your father do that to you? I mean, how much more hurt can, can you have endured? And I'm sure she's laughing on the inside going, this poor sucker's buying everything I'm telling him. Uh. But, uh, but her comment to me made sense. She said, well, as you know, my father's gay, and he was very attracted to my ex-husband. And But I would, when the wheels came off, and I start, when, after we'd separated and all, we you know, began our journey through the court systems, I started to validate everything. And sure enough, her ex-husband did live with her father. And her ex-husband ex did live with her father and was living there with his life partner and another woman, and I have no idea who this woman was, but he did indeed live with her father for a little over a year. So that part of it was true. Um, but I now believe that uh, she probably cheated on her first husband as well. So there was a lot of complications in her childhood, which would later make sense as we traveled down the road and, and we start thinking about what what was it that caused her mm -hmm. to go off to go off the rails. So that's really pretty interesting that that she had kind of reworked reality and sent it up at least in such a way that you bought it, which I would have probably bought it myself. Yeah, and you know you're you're curious about the strange eight week deal. But you get past it because the relationship is seeming okay. You know, yeah. you figure you'll probably break the record. You know, you might make it to nine weeks, let's say. Yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah. you know, off you go. Yeah, we made it. We made it to twenty-three years. I mean, the first seventeen were good. And the, the other thing is, is you know, she was motivated. Uh, she beautiful, fiery, motivated. Um, was heading back to school when I first met her to get get a degree in radiologic technology, which is no easy program, pretty intense oh, wow. two-year program. She yeah. would later go on and get an, another bachelor's degree when she was eight months pregnant with our, with our second child, Katie. So she was a driven woman, a smart woman, a very motivated woman. And those were things that, um, you know, were very important to me and only caused me to fall, you know, more in love with her as, as, as life would go on with her. So. Right. I mean, it sounds like you were a real team yeah. playing for this, you know, playing for the same team, doing you know, kind of taking up that nuclear family path that we're all striving for, right? Yeah, yeah. So those were, I guess, as much as you can be happy on the planet Earth, there was were happy years and, and kind of everything you could hope for. When you were married to her, could you send up what you think would be what you would say, this is what worked best? You know, this is what I really liked about this relationship. Well, I think it goes back to your. I think it goes back to your teamwork part, right? So I, 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 I still am, but I was in the farm. I was in the pharmaceutical field back then. I was a pharmaceutical salesman, district sales manager. I did travel quite a bit, but I, I, I managed my schedule so that I could be actively involved with kids' lives. You know, coaching their teams, being there for their gymnastics, and you know, my schedule. I could flex my schedule when I needed to. So I just like the the, the teamwork approach, and I always applauded her for you know. Uh, being a stay-at-home mom, she built her own little business. 
Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom, and I always thanked her and was more than appreciative for the sacrifices she made so that I could focus on what I needed to do from mm-hmm. a career perspective. But fortunately, we, we were blessed enough financially that uh, we didn't need to worry about her you know, going to work. We didn't live a, a glamorous lifestyle, but we had everything that, that we needed. Um, yeah, that's and, great. And we could be we could be there both be there for our kids equally. So you go, let's say, seventeen years, and yeah. everything is about as good as you could have hoped for at the altar. Yeah. So now we got some bumps in the road, right? I mean, it has to be. This thing has to turn. So what are some of the earliest bumps that you recollect? And I'll I'll get to that in a second, but I also want to say that now where I am today, and you look back and you see things through a different lens. So I would say that um, I was in love with her based on the love that I knew at the time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a relationship. I had only a couple of other serious relationships before her. So my, my lens was very limited. But, you know, as I'm in a relationship now, you know, three year, I waited three years after we were divorced to, to get into a relationship because I wasn't seeking that. But I, I see love differently. I see the relationship differently. And as I look back on our marriage, the first 17, it's like, no, we, we didn't have a whole lot of solid communication between one another. Uh, you know, we, we, we didn't, we didn't have what I have with a woman I'm involved with now, just, you know, adult conversation, um, more laughter, the ability to kind of be truly be myself. And maybe it's a function of maturity. Um, mm-hmm. but I see things differently. So I, I loved her the way I knew how to love back then. Yeah. She loved yeah. me if she's capable of it. I'm not so sure that she is, but she loved mm-hmm. me the way that she you know was capable of doing back then. Um, but the, the first kind of bump in the road when the wheels started to wobble is if I wasn't traveling and I took, I took in 2010, I took a new job with, with the organization that I'm still with today. The kids were at an age where I wanted to get off the road. I wanted to step away from a leadership role and be more of an individual contributor so that I could be even more actively involved in their lives. And if I wasn't out seeing customers, I worked from home. So I was mm-hmm. COVID prior to COVID, you know, so I've worked from home oh, right. for the last 30 plus years. But sure. out of the blue, she would, her, now I, I need to add this, her father had passed away. She, she was estranged from her father for two years through the innocence of our son, who was six at the time. They knew about grandpa. They never met grandpa, but he simply said to, said to mom, he said, why don't you just call him? And she did. And they, they reconnected for five years. And then she had to make the decision. Unfortunately, he had a massive heart attack. She had to make the decision to take him off life support. I believe her father's death, followed by her father's life partner's death a few years later, absolutely crippled her and Uh, pushed her over the edge. And I think mm -hmm. I'm certain that guilt is a toxic emotion. And I think the guilt of the estrangement from her father led her into what I would later discover a hidden prescription drug addiction, amongst other things. Okay. Mm. But, uh, but so I'm working from home. Her father had passed. She's seeing a therapist, which I thought at the time, which I fully supported, to try to deal with the trauma of losing her father and her father's life partner at such a young age. But she marches into my office one day and says, I need to see your phone. I need to see your work emails. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And, and while my therapist believes that, believes that you're cheating on me, I said, the therapist you're seeing to help deal with the death of your father? Well, how did I, how did I get pulled into this? And uh, I, I said, sure, take a look at my phone. I, it was never passcode protected. You could swipe it and you're in. She knew what my um, login information was from my personal email address. She, I had no problem with showing her anything. So that would continue you know, with time, she would do that every three, four months. And I, you know, the first mistake I made, I probably should have said, let me see your phone. You know, let me see you, let you return the favor. But after a while you start getting defensive. And I said, I'd be happy to go meet with your therapist. Why would your therapist even think that? What, what are you telling her to lead her to believe that I'm cheating on you? And she had no explanation. And then, then when I kind of forced the issue a little bit, Lo and behold, this therapist is no longer practicing, according to her, so that she could stay home with her young children. So I would no longer have access. Oh. It was the beginning no. of her gaslighting. You're familiar with gaslighting? 
Yes, I am, of course. Yeah, yeah. so it was the beginning of her gaslighting, her subtle So the minute you call her on this therapist, yeah. in quotes, oh, unavailable, doesn't, unavailable. doesn't do this anymore. Doesn't do this anymore. And I, wow. I, have, a new, I have a new sense of everything. Not a, I have 95% clarity. Once, once everything ended, I had 95% clarity. I, I'll never get to 100% and I'm okay with that. But I honestly believe, Bill, that this therapist refused to prescribe her what she wanted. So she had to move on to somebody else. As I would later build the trail of her hidden prescription drug addiction. So these subtle accusations of infidelity would continue every three, four, five months. And then it was in the spring of 2014 that just holy hell broke loose. Mm -hmm. For whatever, whatever she was telling her mother, her mother would get involved in the act. And again, that's kind of why the, the title of the book, The Third Gift, My Dance with the Devil and Her Mother. And her mother is a woman that I loved and I was very close with. And in 23 years, I never had a angry word or a crossword with her. She was enjoyable to be around. We enjoyed each other's company. So when she started to get in on the game, it I'm like, what do you what I couldn't figure out what she possibly was telling her mother. But it went from infidelity, I believe you're cheating on me, to I believe you're doing drugs. So it was the spring of twenty fourteen that through the inspiration of my son Billy, that I started working out three days a week. You know, lifting weights an hour an hour at a time, three times a week. Mm -hmm. And I used to go 250, 255. I was a pretty good sized guy. And I started losing weight. I lost 30 pounds in less than six weeks just by working out and just right. by switching from Coke to Diet Coke. And then it was 35, and then it was 45, and then it was 50. And then I started experiencing some symptoms, some tingling in my fingers and toes and intestinal issues and neck mm -hmm. stiffness and dizziness. And her and her mother really started to hammer me on lack of trust in the marriage um, and that we never had trust in the marriage and just kind of beat me into the ground. And I started to see a, a family practitioner because of all the weight loss and the symptoms and everything that was going on. And I would ultimately be evaluated for leukemia, Lou Gehrig's disease, early onset of Alzheimer's. They, they couldn't find anything wrong with me. And to explain the significant weight loss. And I had white blood cell counts that were elevated, a few other enzymes that were significantly elevated, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Down the road, well after we separated, I would later discover that she had uh, been poisoning me with arsenic. So I had, a positive, oh. I had a positive hair and nail test that confirmed arsenic poisoning. So how do you think that she was delivering that to you? I believe, and I'll never know for sure, but I believe she was putting in my protein powder. So when I started to work out, my son, who is a, who is, continues to work out to this day, is like, Dad, if you're going to be working out, you need to take some protein powder after your workouts. Well, she would angrily take a 100% weight protein jug out of the cupboard, pull it out of the cupboard, start reading the ingredients. I go, what are you looking for? She says, I know you're putting something in your protein powder. She would mock me with things that she was doing. She would put them right in my face. And so I had been separated from her for about a year before I figured all of this out. So I no longer had access to the protein, but I, I would bet my life on the fact that she was putting it in the protein powder. Well, you were getting it somehow and chances are you weren't taking it on your own. So yeah. Right, it's right. Right. So I had a positive hair and nail test that would later confirm that I was chronically exposed to arsenic. But this was in the spring of 2014. I'm seeing this family practitioner. I mean, our marriage is crumbling. We're going to therapist after therapist. And if the therapist wouldn't listen to her narrative, we'd be done with that therapist. If that therapist didn't fit what she wanted, we would be done. So we started talking about, you know, separation in the fall of 2014. Uh, she called the cops on me. I had been misdiagnosed with bipolar two, because I started to see a psychiatrist. I was doing anything I could to kind of figure out what was going on and to hang on to the family and our family unit. I mean, as they say, the devil attacks your strength and turns it into a weakness. And, mm. and my strength was my love for the, for the family unit. So she was going to attack that. She knew that that would crumble me. And, and, um, but I'd, I'm like, fine. So her story was, ironically, 
the same story I heard about her first husband. He was controlling, he was abusive, he never let her have any friends. Uh, and it, she revisited that, that playbook 20 plus years later. Okay. And there was, no there was no truth to it. Um, but, you know, with gaslighting and when you isolate yourself, you begin to believe it. You begin mm -hmm. to, I didn't, I never believed the infidelity. I never believed the drug addiction piece because I never cheated on her. I know I wasn't doing drugs. Um, but when she started saying that, you know, you got a mood, you're, you're awful moody lately. I felt, and I, I would say to her, of course I'm moody. You're constantly coming at me with accusations and delusions and this and that. And I said, but fine, I will go see, I'll go talk to a psychiatrist. I'd be happy to, you know, but she went with. And, you know, in less than 30 minutes, you fill out a couple of the subjective questionnaires. And he's like, yeah, sounds like you might have bipolar, too. Um, he misinterpreted some things. So whenever we would argue or have an argument, I'd either leave the house or I'd go outside and do yard work or I'd do whatever I could just to get away from her and keep my mind busy. Well, right. B blow it off. Yeah. And she would miss. She very wickedly brilliant. She would misinterpret that. The psychiatrist would misinterpret that, go, well, it sounds like mania, that when you get, you know, elevated, you know, you get, and, and whenever there's a confrontation, you get elevated, you get real busy, and they misinterpreted that as a, a manic episode, it, at least in their mind, you know, so, so anyhow, I see a psychiatrist, two days later, I get the cops called on me because I had a couple of beers, she went out to have dinner with a girlfriend, I'm like, please, please go. Oh, I, want some time, I want some time alone. Our son was away at college. And it was a point where our daughter started to distance herself and would be with friends on weekends and whatever, because she just didn't want to deal with the drama in the house. And Yeah, it's like a war zone. And, yeah, and mom began filling her head with all sorts of things. And I would ultimately, you know, lose my daughter or be alienated from my daughter for a couple of years. Mm. It's one of, my, one of my favorite chapters in the book, When She Comes Back Into My Life, chapter 19, titled, Hi, Daddy, when she you know, finally sees the truth. But, uh, but anyhow, I, I ended up after the cops were called, I go see our family practitioner the following Monday to follow up on all this weight loss and all the symptoms. And, and she happens to go with and relays everything that was going on, what had happened that weekend. And in less than two minutes, you know, he asked me cause we had talked about separation that weekend and, and, and I agreed. I said, fine. I said, I agree to separate till this all blows over, till we figure out where we're going to go. But I said, I will do so under one condition, that you please tell me that there's a chance that we can reconcile and continue to work through this. She never answered that question. No. I, I'll, I'll never forget looking at the darkness in her eyes, and she never answered that question. Yeah, and that wasn't that, that wasn't on the menu. She, no, she didn't want that at all. No. Right, and at that point, I felt broken. I'm like, if I'm... And so the family practitioner, you know, I got my head lowered. I'm sitting on the exam table. And he's like, well, if you lose your family, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know what I would do if I lost my family. Mm. And he, he assumed that that was suicidal ideation. So he had me involuntarily committed. That, oh, that committed evening, now. Committed. committed. Oh. I was involuntarily committed. Uh, went to a... What does that look like? I mean, like... Does somebody come into the room right at that moment or they meet you at home? Like, how, how do you wind up? What, what does that actually play out? What does that <laughs> scene look like? Well, come that on. scene, which I'll never forget that scene, he handed me a little piece of paper, a little white piece of paper that said, I think I might hurt myself. Oh. And uh, yeah. And you're and supposed to sign it? You're supposed to sign it or? No, I didn't have to sign it. He said, if you don't go to such and such hospital, I will have you involuntarily committed. Oh. So I went, we drove to this, she went with me and I'll never forget it, Bill. I mean, the, the mockery and at the time she probably had to believe, man, my story is coming together. But she had been running around telling people he's controlling, he's abusive, he has anger issues. She had been lying to everybody. all sorts of people, everybody. Yeah. And so we go out into the parking lot after I leave with my little white piece of paper and I'm just like thinking, I don't. I don't, I don't have bipolar two. I don't have, I don't even, I don't know what, I don't know what end is up here, but okay. I guess I have no choice, but to go to this dedicated psych hospital. She's standing in the parking lot. I kid you not with her hands in a prayer form, looking up to the sky and saying, thank God we now have answers. Oh man. 
And she says to me, as I, she drove, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, she puts her hand on my leg and she says, it's okay. It's okay, Danny. We'll work through this. I'll be there for you. We don't have to call it bipolar. We can call it a watermelon. I kid you not. She said, we can call it a watermelon. We can call it whatever you want. And, I'm, and again, I was just a broken man. The biggest mistake I made for anybody that may listen to this is I come from a large family. I have a large professional network. I, have a, I had a nice network of friends, but I told nobody what was going on. Oh, right. I can, I can, well, that's part of the I, isolation. I isolated myself and that worked to her favor, worked to her mother's favor. Um, and um, yeah, so we drive to this dedicated psych hospital. I look in the lobby. The lobby is jam-packed. I hand a little piece of paper to the guy behind the window. He looks at me and says, well, it's uh, going to be an eight to 10 hour wait. Have a seat, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and I look around the lobby and I'm like, I'm not staying here. I'm, I'm not staying here. So in the pharmaceutical business, in the medical field, I knew of a dedicated acute care hospital that would have a psychiatric wing that I could go to without, you know, having the cops come find me. So I ended up at this acute care hospital for three days. And unbeknownst to me, on the third day, the Wilmington Police Department would show up. And I'm like, what? why are you here in my room? They're like, we're here to transport you to the dedicated psych hospitals that I tried to avoid. So I spent nine days across two different facilities in psychiatric lockup. And I would later discover when we got further down the road and started to subpoena medical records that that weekend that she called the cops on me and then we went and saw the family practitioner. The day, that weekend, she was writing letters to both my psychiatrist and the family practitioner uh, further setting me up, talking about her suspected, my suspected use of drugs, my infidelity, that she could never trust me. They were long, rambling letters that were in my medical records that they never told me about. Uh, they never said, hey, we received a letter from your wife. Uh, the psychiatrist did. I said, well, can I see it? He's like, nah, she thinks you're cheating on her and you're, and you're doing drugs. But I didn't see the full letters until, until I got my own medical records. And, and uh, those letters are in the book verbatim. I didn't do anything to edit them. They're in the book verbatim. Oh. But she, she set me up. And so her plan, her plan was coming together. And at that point, thankfully, a couple of my brothers got involved, came down. I told them, eh, all's good. You don't need to come. They're like, eh, we're coming. They came down good. to try to figure out what in the hell is going on. And um, inexplicably, I would stay in the marriage for another six or seven months because it was really, she had me on an emotional string. You know, when I was in psychiatric lockup, she wrote me the most beautiful letter expressing her love and how she never wants to see me as emotionally broken as she saw me in the hospital and you know we're going to work through this and you know left me a prayer book and pictures of the kids and I mean she played it up but the abuse began shortly after my discharge um, mm -hmm. and six days after getting out of psychiatric facility I sat down with the attorney for the first time to figure out what my options are and it was also prior to going to the psychiatric facility that she had already retained an attorney. She had been seeing an attorney behind my back plotting a lot of this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting to me listening to you that uh, it jumped into my mind, but many years ago, someone wrote a book that I believe is called the anarchist cookbook. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. No. I may have to get it. You don't need to get it. But my recollection is it's basically how to build bombs and, and how to take over the government and, and blow up buildings and, you know, kind of the Ted Kaczynski approach to uh, fixing your problems. And I was just thinking that in her case, it, that could she could write a cookbook, too, on how to um, join forces with, with uh, people in the medical profession and how to successfully just march somebody wherever you want them to go. I mean, that's really what's going on here. I mean, you're trying to be a good guy and, and you get all these curveballs thrown at you and you, you go, you know, you try to check into this place and then you go into another place and they bounce you back to the first place. And what do those days look like? Are, are you, uh, you know, they, they, they got you what locked in a room and bring you out for counseling sessions with other patients? No, we or had, what is yeah. Well, the counseling, it was, it was a joke. It was a joke. It was, I guess 
when, once you get out of it, probably was the best thing that happened to me, to be honest with you, because once you're in there and you see people that actually have, you know, mental issues, mental challenges, certainly folks with, with bipolar, bipolar 2, schizophrenia, mm. I started questioning why, I started questioning, I'm like, I started doubting that I had bipolar. I never accepted that I had it. Not that, I don't want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's like I'm not going to accept this, 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 this label when it's not accurate. And um, yeah, they were the, some of the most dark and depressing days. I mean, I was sexually harassed uh, by another gentleman uh, over and over again. Uh, another we, patient? We yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have locked doors. You couldn't oh. lock your door to take a shower. So you're showering with a plastic curtain. Every morning you go and pick up your little plastic bucket of shampoo and toothpaste. I could smile about it now, but many mornings I brush my teeth with soap and wash my hair with toothpaste because the packets look that similar. Oh, uh, oh man. And, um, you know, there, there was no counseling. There was no therapy. You really? had group session. Oh, no. oh you sit in a circle? I kinda... sit in a circle, and I saw my assigned social worker. I saw her for less than 45 seconds. Less than 45 seconds. Well, what, what do you want? That should, that should do it. Right. I, I, yeah, I went to her to find out what the discharge process was. I did it the morning after I was admitted to the, the dedicated psych hospital. And I filled out my little request to meet with her. And she says, what do you want to meet about? And I said, uh, I want to talk to you about what the discharge process looks like. She says, well, have you been involuntarily committed? I said, yes, I have been. She said, well, that's up to your physician. There's no need for us to meet. Go back and brush your teeth. Yeah. Yeah, so you got you got fights going on in there. We, <laughs> I can smile about it and laugh about it now, but we had a conflict resolution class that was taught, and a fight broke out. Fight broke out at a conflict resolution class. Yeah, somebody got an F on that one. Somebody did, but I try to be a good patient. It's like let's just go. We'll show up to these little sessions. I mean, most of the morning sessions were, do you want to hurt yourself? Do you want to hurt somebody else? And and then everybody would get their morning meds. I wasn't on a whole lot of meds until I saw my psychiatrist for the first time. And then it's like, mm, you're only on that dose of that. We're gonna we're gonna increase that and we're gonna up that. And fortunately, being in a pharmaceutical field, once I got out of there, I stepped myself off most of the stuff because I'm like, I, I don't need I don't need an antipsychotic. You know, I don't need to take an antipsychotic. Wow. It was, yeah, it was, I, I thought I, the crazy thing is it, in life, it's good to not know where your journey is going to take you. Oh, because oh. had I known that I was going to have another, wow, four years of hell in front of That's me, true. I may have tapped, I may have tapped out. So thank God we don't know what the plan is that he has for us. But That's I thought, true. I thought I, I'm at, at, I'm at rock bottom, I'm at rock bottom. I remember coming home. You had a full beard because, I mean, if you wanted to shave in there, you know, you needed a doctor's order. If you wanted to do oh, laundry, yeah. you cut you yourself. A, yeah, yeah. You cut, somebody could supervise you while you were doing it. But I, so I had a full beard. And, you know, I'll never forget it. Walk, you know, my daughter had to be picked up from school. My w wife at the time went and picked her up from school. And I, you know, I met her in the hallway and I got a side hug from my daughter, you know, because my, uh -huh. my daughter was afraid of me. Um, you know, not, and I didn't talk to either of my kids for nine days when I was in there. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want, mm. I didn't know what to tell them, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, stayed in the marriage and, and, and yeah, even and after all this, you stayed in the marriage. Well, because here's the, and we haven't touched on this, but early in our marriage, probably six, seven years in our marriage, she started complaining of having some health issues. Okay. And, and, and she would, and I'd go with her to many of these appointments, but she started believing that she had an autoimmune disease. Okay. So she, would, she would carry with that with her for, for years. And if you mm -hmm. were to talk to her today and I haven't talked to her in four years, but if you were to have a conversation with her, she would probably lay out all the health ailments that she had. Mm -hmm. But we would later discover that her autoimmune disease uh, is actually in her head. She doesn't have one. Oh, okay. Uh, paid, for, paid for two trips to a prestigious clinic in Florida, and I never asked her to see the medical records. You know, you trust your wife, right? Right. But we only discovered this once we subpoenaed all her medical records because they were going to claim that she's too sick to work and he needs to pay her alimony for the rest of you know, the rest of her life. Uh, so it was an alimony trial. But 
So anyhow, I, I say that. So I, I never looked at her medical records. She did have a lot of health problems, but I would later discover it was probably self-inflicted due to all of the medications that she was taking that I had no idea she was taking. Okay. Mm. And so, you know, all of her cardiac issues, without a doubt, are related to the three different formulations of amphetamines she was taking, you know, behind my back. And, and again, so I'm, she, I'm thinking she's got an autoimmune disease. So as I'm in this psychiatric facility, I come out, I start seeing more and more of her anger, hostility, paranoia, delusions. And I'm thinking, huh, this could be due to her autoimmune disease. And I had access because of my line of work to neurologists and other folks that I could talk to them privately and say, hey, you know, is, is this possible? And they're like, oh, yeah, that autoimmune disease could attack any organ system in the body. So, you know, her cardiac issues, her neuropathy, some of her anger and mood changes. And so I chalked it up to all of that. But I would later discover again, in fact, it was due to the medications that she was taking. She was okay. taking some powerful medicines behind my back. The title of the book is The Third Gift, and I'll cut to that. The, the third gift is when you know, we separated, we ultimately separated. I was living out of my car, hotel, living with family up in Pennsylvania. I mm. uh, just you know, needed some, some support because I had lost my daughter. My son was away at college. I had friends and stuff that wanted nothing to do with me because they were thinking that I was the monster. Mm. So I kind of really was on an island. But anyhow, at our first mediation, the third gift, first two gifts are my kids. The third gift is when through a, through a mediating attorney, uh, she made the accusation that I gave her herpes. Oh. The third gift is herpes. It was God's way, Bill, of smacking me across the face to say, you know, son, your marriage is over. Mm. So when they dropped that grenade on the table and I looked at it and I looked and I'm like, that's a DNA test. It's 100% accurate. You know, she, she has herpes. My first mm -hmm. thought was, please pray that you test negative, which in fact, I did test negative. I tested negative multiple times. I tested negative for every STD, mm -hmm. but it led me to, to begin to take a look at her medical claims and her pharmacy claims, not her medical records, but through our insurance company, I had no idea what I had access to, but I had access to five years worth of medical claims, five years of pharmacy claims. This is where I discovered the hidden prescription drug addiction. This is where I discovered that she more than likely had pretty much every STD out there based on some of the medications that she was taking to treat it. Uh, so everything that she and her mother beat me into the ground with, she actually was doing. Massive infidelity, drug addiction, stealing money from our marital account. So I thank God every day for, it truly is a gift. And it, it was not a play on words because people call herpes the gift that keeps on giving. Oh. That's, but it's that's not it at all because had she never revealed that i do not know where i'd be today emotionally i do not know where i'd be with my relationship with my kids like who they're going to believe or if i had tested positive so the good lord definitely delivered me from from evil and provided me a sense of clarity today that you know it is priceless it was i was able to restore my identity as a man restore my identity as a father um so I will be forever grateful to the man above for intervening and kind of providing, helping me see things I failed to see. I mean, but herpes was your ticket out. Yeah. Herpes was my ticket out um, because I, I would never have looked at any of this stuff. And I, it took me hours and hours and hours, but I've built spreadsheets and I'm cross-referencing everything. She was seeing OBGYNs that I never heard her mention she saw, you know, so uh, she, mm. she was, I, I'll never know who she was out running around with, who they were, how many. Uh, because as we moved towards our alimony trial, we were under a court order to maintain the integrity of our electronic devices, computers, and phones. And she took the liberty of destroying her phone, restored it to factory settings, and wiped it clean, and pretty much wiped four or five computers clean as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So she destroyed any any hope of any hope. Of and there's no penalty for doing any of that. No, we had a pretrial hearing, what they call a motion in limine. To have the judge weigh in on the negative inference that look, she destroyed evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, the judge, the judge gave us the negative inference. Said yes, she, she, there was something on her phone and on her computers that would have been negative to her during this trial. But I'm not going to make the leap that that was due to illicit sexual behavior. 
in North Carolina, if there's proof of infidelity, they should the the the, the guilty one should be barred from alimony. Oh, how about that? And so that's the only reason why we went to trial. That's the only reason I spent the ridiculous amount of money I spent was because we had DNA evidence that she has herpes. She destroyed her phone. We had her own OBGYN and an STD expert that we would retain that testified on our behalf at the trial that, yeah, she's got it and she didn't get it from him. Mm. And uh, so that, that, that trial also is in the book. I took, took advantage of the concept of public record and had them send me the audio files and, you know, I reproduced them, the significant parts of it in, in, into the book because it was 17 hours. Um, but, but I did read a few pages in your book already when you talked about your daughter, you know, having to be, being, being the defendant, right. That you're going to have to, I forget what your exact verbiage was, but it's, that's how I felt going into the courtroom. Like, I'm the guilty one, right? Yes, yes. Uh, you, yeah, it gets talk, turned around. Yeah, it gets, gets turned, turned around. around. And, her, and her attorney did that. And it was their story at the alimony trial, again, was he's controlling, he's abusive, blah, blah. There was no proof. There was nothing. There was nothing to show that I was abusive or controlling or whatever. I mean, she took it so far towards the end. To, she was creating her own evidence. Uh, she smacked her own backside hard enough to leave handprints on it. And took pictures of it. Oh, I wasn't even living at the. I wasn't living in the home at the time that she alleged that I hit her. Uh, yeah, and so they they produced that photo at, at the deposition, at my deposition. I'm like, I, I wasn't. I, I said I wasn't even in the home. I haven't seen her in four months. How did I do this to her? I mean, so she was wickedly brilliant. I mean, and desperate, of course, because she had been caught, and the only reason she revealed the herpes I, i'm certain because she thought she had infected me so we had been together three nights in a row prior to me being exiled out of my home so we had been together been intimate three nights in a row i only include it in the book with my daughter both my kids have read the book and my daughter's like dad why did you have to put the sex stuff in there i said because people need appropriate context mm -hmm. that we had, we had been together and then two weeks later i'm living out of my car and out of a hotel and I'm certain she thought she had infected me. Uh, certain thought, yeah. She was going to turn that on you too. Going to hang that on me too. He's got bipolar. He spent nine days in a psych facility. He's crazy. He's abusive. He's a drug addict. No, by the way, he gave me herpes. It would have really rounded out her picture. And again, I, I gratitude is not enough. I, I've got to find a different word. But so the man saved me for sure. Oh, and oh, by the way, he saved me from arsenic poisoning too. I almost left the arsenic stuff out of the book because I didn't discover medically that I had been poisoned with arsenic until about two months prior to our start of our trial. So I had a bunch of legal stuff going on. I had to maintain my sanity to keep my full-time job. I had my daughter who just had come back into my life, moved in with me, trying to repair that. So when I discovered the arsenic stuff, it was like, eh, it doesn't shock me. After everything else I just discovered, it doesn't faze me that she tried to kill me. Yeah, so you were not living under the same roof when you when the arsenic discovery took place. Correct. Because I yeah, was thinking did. earlier when you were talking about that, I don't think I could sleep at night if I thought someone in the house was trying to give me poison. No, we had been separated about a year. And so, you know, it took, to, and I put my health issues on the back burner. Um, but I started feeling better other than the stress and anxiety of going through it separation and a divorce and having your daughter not in your life. Other than that, I started the tingling and all that and the intestinal issues, you know, went away. So I started feeling, feeling a little bit better, but yeah, it was about a year. It was about a year after we had separated that I finally got to a liver specialist and, you know, he discovered it through a hair and nail test after he explored kind of what was going on in the marriage and, you know, tested me for hep C, hep B, HIV all over again. And when you compare yourself to the person you were before you hit that 17th year you know when you look back as as just you know how you thought about life how you thought about the world how you thought about how things would go when you go back and think about that guy versus the guy you are today how would you say you've changed oh that's a fantastic question uh i've thought a lot about that 
the guy at the 17-year mark is a guy, and I, I would call it three C's. I was complacent, I was comfortable, and I was confident. I was complacent in the sense that life is good, right? Mm. Life is good, mm -hmm. you know, the career's going well, the family's good, everybody's healthy. I, I was confident in that I had the vision and I had the plan for, for where, where my life was going to go. And the comfortable piece, again, you're living comfortably. You know, you, you haven't really had to face any adversity other than the health issues that we were dealing with with my wife at the time, um, mm -hmm. which I now know the majority of those were self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. um, but I would describe it that way, comfortable, complacent, confident. I was a man of faith, but he was not as much of a priority as he is today. Mm -hmm. And he was, and so... He was the first one. The good Lord was the first one that I went to. Who I spent a lot of time in church. It didn't matter what denomination. When I was traveling on the road, I mean, I would shake internally so bad just from the anxiety of everything. Right. I just needed a, a calm place to go to. So I made right. God everything's more, unraveling for you. Yeah. I made God more of a priority, and he was the, he was the first place I went to on the day that that grenade went off that she accused me of giving her herpes. I certainly prayed to him for negative test results, but I also quickly said, I never questioned him why, but I simply said, let, let your will be done. You know, just walk with me, you know? And it's like, I've, I've been in a psych facility. Now I got all this to deal with. It's like, so my, my viewpoint now too, Bill, is to seize the moment of every day. Uh, as you know too well, right? We're not promised another day. You don't know when adversity is going to hit you. Uh, sure. But you just, just have to trust that he will be there with you. Uh, and he's put a, a ton of good people into my life and into my kids' lives, you know, to walk with us as we went through this. Sadly, they had to endure their entire college careers and high school careers dealing with this. And, you know, my daughter's still struggling a little bit because mom is not in either of their lives. They haven't seen her in over two years. Now, is that their decision or her decision? Well, I mean, it was her decision. She because when once her network of lies fell apart and her story crumbled, she had no choice but to move out of town. She moved out and moved twelve hours away down down to Florida for a part time job. It's not like she had a lucrative position waiting for her. Her and her mom packed up the car. Her mom lived in Pennsylvania, but her mom lived with her in Florida for a short period of time, and her mom passed away in April of uh, 2018, uh, quite suddenly. But I'm not going to speculate mm. on any of that. But mm. she quite suddenly passed away at the age of 73. Oh, wow. And um, yeah. She. So yeah, mom moved away. She didn't go to our daughter's high school graduation. She didn't go to our daughter's college graduation, which was in May of 21. Mm. So she's not really been in their lives for the last six years. They had limited communication with her. But my son made the decision to block her a couple of years ago because she started to attack him. You know, okay. Uh, can't get you. We can get him. Yeah, verbally assault him. He's like, Dad, I can't, can't deal with it. And I've always said to my kids, I said, I support, and I understand whatever decision you need to make with respect to your mom, whether you want a relationship or not. But you've got to accept that she's not the mother she was, you know, eight, ten years ago. She's completely rewired her mind with the medications that she was taking. She was taking. Three different, and probably still is, three different formulations of am amphetamines, benzodiazepines or Xanax-type medications, downers, mood stabilizers. I mean, the list was long. It, and mm -hmm. that's why, and I, when I looked at her pharmacy claims, I'm like, oh, my God. I had no idea she was taking all this stuff. Right. But, yeah, I'm, 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 God is more of a priority. I live in the moment more. And I recognize that. You know, it's not my not my plan. If additional adversity comes, which it may, I've got the strength to get through it. You know, I mean, you've proven that to yourself, and that's that's a comfort right there. Yeah. And chances are, you'll never see anything like this again. I, yeah, I fear I fear nothing. People have asked, I fear nothing. I really don't. Good. That's a good outcome. That's a good healing. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of episodes, mostly with women. There's, there was one other fellow who came on and he told his story. So you are the second one. I know there are other guys out there and I'm not trying to make it a male female thing at all by any stretch. Yep. I like having you on as much as I liked having Ryan on 
because I want to emphasize the fact that the door can swing both ways. It's not just always men on women, although it is predominantly that. But what would you tell, let's just say at this moment, other guys who might be going through any kind of the strangeness that you've been dealing with? What, what would you say? You know, How would you maybe speed them up a little bit, unlike what you had happen? And you went alone too, so that didn't help you. You know, you, yeah, the, you walked that through be, that jungle by yourself. That would be the, that would be the first thing that I would say. Cause I, I and again, I, I'm on all the social media platforms to promote the book, you know, promoting the book. I'm not looking to, to get rich with the book. I'm not looking to personally make any money off it. I'm looking to support a couple of nonprofit foundations. Good. First of all, don't isolate yourself. I isolated myself only because just the way I'm wired, the way I was wired as a kid, my nickname as a kid was, Curious George, because I always needed to understand how things work. Why? And I was a big why guy. And so in my mind, I could never wrap my head around all that was going on. Why is she accusing me of infidelity, drug addiction? Why is this? So I didn't do it from a pride perspective. I didn't, you know, but on social media, you get tired of hearing people, you, know, you put your story out there. And what I get back is man up, not from everybody. And I and I kind of oh, I kind of laugh at it, but say, wait, am I supposed to rub some dirt on it? I'm not supposed to share my story. What what what? But I would say, don't don't isolate yourself. Find somebody, whether it's religious personnel, whether it's a friend, anybody that somebody that you trust that you can confide in. But don't expect them to be able to provide you with answers. But expect them to listen. You know, just just to listen to let you vent. That's great advice. And to give you a sense of objectivity. I lost objectivity. Somebody from the outside. When I finally started going to people, a good friend of mine said, you know, she went to my wife and told my wife you were hitting her, you were doing this and that. He said, I never, I never believed it. But I said, why didn't you come to me? <laughs> why didn't you say something to me? Well, I didn't want to get in the middle of your marriage. I'm like, I understand that, but... So don't isolate yourself. Find somebody to confide in. Don't expect them to have the answers. I would also say don't put a timeline on when this is going to end. I made that mistake a couple of times. You know, I thought, well, it's going to end now. I've got a negative test. This has to end. Nope, it didn't end. It dragged on for another two, three years. So hmm. learn to expect disappointment. But at the same time, the way that I've dealt with disappointment after disappointment after disappointment was to... And I don't want it to be too cliche, but a lot of cliches have come true for me. Count your blessings. You know, mm -hmm. and I mean, physically, I've had many nights in the darkest days that I was on my hands and knees with my head buried in a hotel bed, just praying to God to give me the strength to, to, to get through it, get through tomorrow, get through tonight and get me to tomorrow. And we'll see what happens then. Count your blessings. I physically started to write them out. You know, just to lay them out on paper so that I could see, look at, look at that. Look at all the blessings you have. Mm. And then the other mm. one is something I like to call relativity, meaning I've, I've met a lot of folks in my travels throughout the, the dark years. And then I even hear your story. You know, a lot, a lot of the podcasts that I've been on, everybody has had some type of adversity to deal with. For me, it's relativity, meaning when you think your world is falling apart and you have it bad, just recognize others have it far worse far worse. And, and that keep, kept me grounded to say, all right, we're going to get through this. So expect disappointment and get through disappointment by really sitting down to count your blessings. Focus on what you have versus what you lost or had taken away from you. Anybody that reads the book, they will see there's a, an awful lot of disappointment, even, even the way that it ended. But the systems aren't fair. Life's not fair. But this ain't heaven, you know? Yeah, far from. Far from heaven. I like what you're saying here, and one of the things I like the best is the idea of, of getting to other people, and let's not forget domestic violence counselors who are, who are there. There's always the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and that's 800-799-SAFE, so the hard part to remember in that whole thing is 799, 800-799-SAFE, and they are there 24-7, right. and they are there to counsel people, to help people, to give you suggestions and the best thing you can do is get to somebody especially somebody who is a professional listener who understands as you do so well now that in telling your story 
you actually get to understand your own story better because it's one thing to have a bunch of emotions bouncing around in your head, but when you have to tell somebody about it, now you have to actually come up with some kind of a structure to what you're talking about. It's not just a bunch of, of sparks flying around in your head that each one of them makes you feel bad. And it's like, my life is a complete mess. And, and what's great about calling a line like that is you can call, you can stay on as long as you want, you can hang up. They're not going to call you right back. They're not going to send the police to your house if you're talking about abuse or whatever that is. You know, without your permission, they're not going to. So, you know, but yeah, get help. I mean, really get help. If something feels wrong, figure it is wrong. Trust yourself on that. And this goes too for people who are seeing you go through it to not just say, well, you know, I he's got to figure this out for himself or uh, it takes time or like you just said earlier, it's none of my business. That doesn't help anybody. And wow, yeah. you know, if you knew something was going down yeah. with somebody who you cared about, and then maybe a few days later, you find out that person is no longer living. I can tell you that's a lot worse than wow. talking to somebody and they get mad at you or, or you know, telling on somebody, ratting them out, so to speak, right. you know. But yeah, so once right. again, Absolutely. tell yeah. me again, I've heard it, I know it, but tell us all again the name of your book. And you also have a website with your book on there and other information. Again, I wanted to thank you for this opportunity. Uh, it's been great to connect with you. It's been great to learn a little bit Good. about your story. I look forward to learning more about it. The title of the book is The Third Gift, My Dance with the Devil and Her Mother. You know, folks can certainly find, I'm, I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok, I'm on Facebook, you know, at The Third Gift. The website is thirdgift.com because the third gift domain was taken, but it's all spelled out, right? Third. Yeah, it's all spelled out. Yeah. So Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, uh, website, the book is available through Ballast Books. It's also available through um, you know, all the online retailers, uh, Walmart, Target, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Good. There's an audio book available and an ebook as well. And I think you told me the other day you actually narrated the audio book yourself, right? I did. I did. Yeah. I'm, you know, if you go on Amazon, you can hear a sample and I did hear it and, uh, and, uh, and I just heard it as far as it would take me, but I actually thought it's a professional narrator announcer. I didn't know it was you. I hadn't heard your voice before that. Thank you very much. So JD, I want to thank you for coming and speaking with us on the when dating hurts podcast. And I know I say this to a lot of people at this point in these episodes, but I just have such respect for how you hung in there. You tried to do everything you possibly could to keep this marriage afloat, even though the person that you were in this marriage with was doing everything in the meantime to puncture holes in, in, uh, in this analogy, you know, this analogous boat and make it sink and make it sink the way she wanted it to with his, which is you're the one that's going to go under. Mm. So, but, you know, not only did you do that, but you know, a lot of people go through these horrible situations and they somehow manage to, in some cases, crawl to the other side of their lives and get out of it. And then that's it. And, and they just want to live. They, and I have full respect for that. I don't think that everybody then has to become an evangelist running around and writing a book and doing a podcast. I mean, you have to do what you can live with or what your abilities allow you to do. But you're taking it as far as can be imagined. And I just have such respect for the fact that that you're putting this out there it's a very personal story not an easy story to listen to or to read it's shocking really i i got that right from the very first email that i received i'm just glad to meet you and i know that that we kind of backed into each other in life but but i feel a friendship there so thank you well, I thank you very much. Again, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the conversation, and um, yeah, I'm a firm believer that on this journey, God has put people into our lives for a reason, right? Nothing happens by coincidence. So it's been, it's been a real pleasure chat with you, and um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity today. Well, I'm sure we'll be in touch again, and I'll get your book and write my review. Yeah, I will do the same for yours, and I, my plan is to dive into this uh, tonight. Good. Jump into it a little bit, and it's uh, it's compelling. For sure. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, 
followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.